Hi, everybody. This is Adam Shartoff, your host of FilmWax Radio. As of this last week, we have expanded the platforms where you can find FilmWax Radio. If you are not an iTunes subscriber or if you don't have the Stitcher app, two platforms that the podcast has been available for the longest time now, we're now available on Spotify as well as Google Play. So there's no excuse for not subscribing to this podcast in one way or another. Now on with episode 500. At 14 of the podcast. Talk, Bill Marx Radio, your favorite podcast for independent film talk. What an episode this is. Holy moly. Episode 514. It all came together rather quickly. I didn't even really know it was going to happen. So, uh, well, Peter Biskind, uh, that, that was in the works for a while. And that was a treat because uh, I had been wanting to talk to Peter Biskind really since I started this show years ago. I mean, he wrote some incredible books, right? Some pretty remarkable stuff. I mean, everybody who's into movies has read Easy Rider's Raging Bulls, which is, as of 2018, a 20-year-old book. This all comes up on the Pursuant Conversation. I don't suppose I should talk too much about things that are coming up in the conversation, other than, let's see, how did this all work? I guess I knew the book was about to come out, his latest, which is not really about movies. No, it's about movies and television, uh, this one, and about the culture. And the timing of the book is pretty good, actually. But anyway, I knew it was coming out, so I reached out to his publisher, the guys at New Press. And then they said, yeah, he's coming into New York, he's doing some events, and we can try to squeeze it in. And they did, and uh, we we had a great time. We we really did. I, I mean, he came up, and turns out we just had a really fun conversation. And uh, he really seemed to enjoy himself. That's always, you know, a very satisfying thing. When, when I think somebody's been around a long time and has done so many interviews that they, it's not like that's something they're looking forward to doing. They sort of have to just do those interviews. They have to do the press. And uh, it becomes part of the work. That That's not an untypical thing I encounter. You know, I, I really just encountered the same thing with Peter Bogdanovich the other day, where, you know, he's done thousands, maybe, ten, I mean, maybe tens of thousands, I don't know, of interviews over the course of 50 years or more. So, you know, for him to have to do another interview is not going to be very exciting. But then they sit down and they see this guy and he's warm and he's earnest and uh, he's, most importantly of all, he's uh, prepared. And uh, so then they kind of start enjoying themselves. And I think that happened with both of these Peters, Peter Bogdanovich and Peter Biskind. Peter Biskind. So he was coming in to do this event at the bookstore on the Upper West Side. So I found a spot on the Upper West Side to uh, do this interview. So to make it real easy for him. 
And so we did it, and uh, it came out great. And um, the new book is called The Sky is Falling, How Vampires, Zombies, Androids, and Superheroes Made America Great for Extremism. It's being published by New Press, as I mentioned. It's available now. Pick up a copy wherever books are sold. We're going to get into my conversation with uh, Biscuit in a moment. Then we're going to talk to two of the cast members of a new film called Can You Ever Forgive Me? Which is coming out this Friday, October 19th, in theaters all over the country. With stars Melissa McCarthy, and she plays Lee Israel, a real person who was a writer. Uh, I mean, she passed away not too long ago, but she was a biographer and uh, wrote a number of very successful books early on in her career, and then her career sort of just fizzled out a little bit. And part of the reason why is because she was never really uh, one who would play the game, you know, and she was not uh, socially easygoing. She wasn't uh, that type of person. So things sort of began to really fall apart for her. And out of desperation, she started to forge letters from literary icons of the past, uh, she just had a real great knack of to, for making what seemed like very authentic letters. She also made friends with this guy, and he's uh, who became a friend and who kind of ended up helping her. She, he's portrayed by Richard E. Grant, who is on this episode, as well as Dolly Wells. We're going to get into a little bit more detail all about that in a second. But now to shift back to Peter Biskind again. The name of the book is called "The Sky Is Falling." It's available now. His biography goes like this uh, on the book flap. It just says, Peter Biskind is a contributing editor to Vanity Fair, a writer for Esquire, and the author of the classic bestsellers, Easy Writing, Raging Bulls, How the Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll Generation Saved Hollywood, and Down and Out Pictures, Miramax, Sundance, and the Rise of Independent Film, among other books. He is the former editor-in-chief of American Film Magazine and the executive editor of Premier Magazine. This is my conversation with Peter Biskin here on Film Wax Radio. But let's correct the record. I'm recording now, by the way. I just okay. turned it on, so, so it's not to waste time. But uh, I should mention that uh, Star has in, uh, been in, in, uh, my, at my aunt's house in Fairhaven, New Jersey, in, in her attic, because a lot of my stuff was in storage for a while. Unfortunately, I left that one there. Oh, I thought you were going to tell me she wouldn't give it back to you because she liked <laughs> yeah. it so much. It's going, now with my whole family, it's passing from hand to hand. And then um, I do have my lunches with Orson as well. Uh, I read that, and Henry Jaglum's been on this show, uh, and, uh, and we don't talked. Forget about... my first book. No, uh, I... seeing is believing. I don't have that one, so uh, that's. But you know what I feel like, and then I'm going to let you talk. You don't give a shit. I'm... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do. I do. Uh, I, no, I was going to say is that um, it's always good to leave one out for a while because then you have one to look forward to. If you read them all, then yeah. But this one is actually sort of a sequel to that. Oh, um, I see. Right, you do mention that. <clears throat> but that's okay. All right. Well, I, I will. I'll read it and think of it as a pre a prequel. Prequel. <laughs> I suppose this one being a sequel, right? Is that a well? Thanks for doing the podcast, Peter Biskin. It's my pleasure. 
I appreciate it because uh, I was also saying earlier that you know I, I have an ongoing list of of, of people I want to talk to and have wanted to talk to for a long time, and your name is right up there. So this well, is a thank pleasure. You. Yeah, I know. I'm flattered. Well. How far will flattery get me? It's a great way to meet people. It's the start of podcasts. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) Exactly. It is. I've made so many. I've never thought of it that way. Yeah. I actually have made some really wonderful friends Mm -hmm. just just as a uh, sort of of incidentally, you know, Mm -hmm. but that keep coming back on. Even when I don't invite them, it's they. uh, (laughs) You're always welcome back on. Uninvited or invited, by the way. (laughs) We are listening. (laughs) We're talking to Peter Biskin. About his latest book of this is your sixth or seventh? I think it's my eighth. Eighth book. I don't count. Um, I did a trivia book on, uh-huh. God, on the Godfather. Uh-huh. Oh, right. In a weak moment. The Godfather. And I don't count that. It's like, you know, it's like filmmakers who made pornographic films where they were just starting and they leave them off their resume. I leave that. I try to leave that off my resume. Okay. <laughs> I definitely want to look at it now, though, for the, the pictures. The Godfather Companion? Is that what's yes, called? Yes, it's called The Godfather Companion. Right. I vaguely remember uh, reading about it, too. This one, though, is called The Sky is Falling, subtitled How Vampires, Zombies, Androids, and Superheroes Made America Great for Extremism. So what does that mean? Let's, I guess that will, that's what we can talk about. I don't know. It's just kind of a catchy title that um, doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I got you joking around. Um, I, uh, you know, what, what that means is that in um, a lot of the movies and TV shows that uh, feature uh, zombies, vampires, androids, and superheroes. Mm-hmm. Imagine um, extreme situations, often the apocalypse uh, of one sort or another, a, z- a zombie plague, um, I don't know, an invasion of vampires, the uh, s- superhero, all the superhero movies. A plane movies. crashing on a deserted plane, island. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the, mm-hmm. Or, you know, the, the superhero movies always feature or often feature uh, inv- alien invasions from outer space, um, you know, the appearance of a supervillain, whatever. In any event, these um, extreme situations uh, are used um, in two different ways. By the mainstream, and we'll get to what that is in a minute, the mainstream uses extreme situations to show that the government and the authorities, quote-unquote, and the gov- government's agents, usually mm-hmm. cops and docs or soldiers and scientists, can deal with an extreme situation. In, um, in other words, they function well. Uh, in uh, what I'm calling extremist shows, um, the authorities either disappear, collapse in the face of an of a extreme situation of one kind or another, a holocaust, an apocalypse, mm-hmm. or else they're corrupt and um, sometimes actually evil. Uh, so what these, sh- what these shows do, the vampire zombies, uh, whatever shows do, is they present extreme situations as often as an excuse for extreme measures. And they make extreme measures uh, look like the only option available mm-hmm to the characters, to the heroes. I mean, a great example of that is um, what I consider a right-wing show, 24, uh, which uh, excelled at um, imagining, um, you know, you have an hour to avert uh, the, uh, the release of a dangerous plague on Los Angeles mm-hmm. or an hour, to, an hour and a half to avert a nuclear attack on Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And in that situation, anything, including torture, which um, Jack Bauer used um, uh, 
frequently right. is justified. So um, in arguing that extreme culture has sort of taken over American culture, uh, it was necessary to sort of examine all these shows in which extreme situations exist. And those are the, those are the zombie, vampire, android, right. whatever, whatever yeah, yep. shows. Yes. Uh, you wrote this even before, like one recent very popular show, *Handmaid's Tale*. That was probably just—I assume you were writing that on the cusp of that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a big fan of *The Handmaid's Tale*. I mean, I read the book oh. when it came, you know, years Margaret and Atwood years was, ago. It was a great book, but yeah. I found the show itself um, slow and boring. Uh-huh. Um, but that's neither here nor there. I mean, I did write this. Sh- I, I did write the book long before *Handmaid's Tale* came out. Read it and. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, Oh, yeah, this one? Oh, you did read it. Write it, rather, before that? Yeah, I started it during the Obama administration. Uh And uh, it's interesting because in those days, um, you could see extremism raising his ugly head, Mm -hmm. but, uh, or as case may be, attractive head, depending on your point of view. Um, But, and a lot of the things I discussed were um, uh, were not in the common parlance in those days. But now, uh, of course, extremism is a much more pre- pressing issue, and um, it sort of changed the book a bit because mm-hmm. it's no longer Obama, but it's Trump, and it's like you know, it's like um, you know, two different, uh, you know, t- two completely different approaches. Could, you to, don't uh, think you could get American politics? Right. You couldn't get a, you know more, more of a contrast. Exactly. Did you go back in then and have to revise because the you know, post-election? Well, Stuff I revised for a lot book. of different reasons. I was constantly revising, and I revised for a lot of different reasons, and that was one of them. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I yeah. had to take things out, and I had to modify things, and uh, and then I had to put Trump in because he was such a great example of extremism. Right, yeah, yeah, it's only reinforced. Well, I mean, the argument of the book is that we're headed in an extremist direction, thus extreme culture. Okay. But um, what I thought you were going to ask me was, you know, to give some examples of how um, these these shows break down uh, politically. That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to okay, ask good, you about that. Good. Yeah, well, you can't. Yeah, I mean, that's so I, I more mean, on a micro level, like uh, asking about how specifically, like, uh, let's say, a Walking Dead. You mentioned uh, Twenty Four, uh, which actually, oddly, kind of not oddly, it it did coincide very obviously, kind of coincided with the Bush years. So it's not exactly. such a coincidence. And during they, they loved it, uh, the Bush. Oh, I'm sure because it kind of almost but made want- made torture. Uh, okay, yeah, cool. and solo. Yeah. And cool, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, um, I want to actually start with Game of Thrones because um, Game of Thrones is a good example of what um, I call in the book a centrist or mainstream show. Mm-hmm. Even though you know it features God, it didn't feature any. Maybe it does vampires and uh, it does feature zombies, but um, even though it's set in a fantastical universe, past universe, right. Um, it has a lot to tell us about um, contempor- our, our contemporary situation. And I call it a centrist show because it, um, it's uh, permeated, I think, by centrist politics. And what I mean by that is it's set in a country called, uh, not a country, but an area called Westeros, which is made up of seven kingdoms. Each kingdom is, um, is uh, 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 run by a, a, fa- a single family, and the, and the family dynasties are constantly at war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the most important uh, value is loyalty to family. Now, um, that's an extremist value. In other words, the center values uh, 
a larger pol a political uh, construct. It values uh, the community. Uh, it values um, more abstract notions. I mean, from a, from a uh, centrist point of view, that, you know, uh, putting a premium on the family is, is mere tribalism. Mm -hmm. And uh, in other words, uh, kinship relationships, it's a primitive, uh, a primitive attitude. And uh, we've evolved way, way beyond that, according to the mainstream. And so what you had is a bunch of tribal wars um, throughout the, I don't know, six seasons of, um, first six seasons of, of, of uh, Game of Thrones until the White Walkers, the zombies from the north that they're constantly anticipating actually appear. And then um, all these tribal values go out the window and Jon Snow, the king of the north, mm -hmm. uh, devotes himself to coalition building, which is a mainstream project. I mean, the mainstream values, uh, another uh, term for the mainstream is, is pluralism, which values um, uh, tolerance, diversity, gathering people under a big tent mm -hmm. and the, the their notion was the bigger the tent um the more diverse the tent mm -hmm. um the more stable the society nevertheless there were always people that well there were people who dis who, there were dissidents who didn't want to go into the tent and there were also uh people because the people that the mainstream, uh, the pluralists didn't want under the tent. Mm -hmm. And they were called abused, abusively called extremists. And you had extremists of the extreme right and extremists of the extreme left. And um, because to get in, on, get, in, get in under the tent, you had to play by the rules of the center, which were things like obey the rule, the rule of law, acknowledge the rule of law. Um, as I said, value... Um, uh, values like diversity, mm -hmm. uh, tolerance, a compromise over principle, et cetera, et cetera. All those sort of democratic values that we uh, learned as, uh, as kids. In civics. So um, suddenly, uh, John, getting back to Game of Thrones, suddenly mm -hmm. Jon Snow is trying to uh, create a coalition of all these warring families. And uh, some of them don't... Um, some of them don't agree, mainly um, Queen Cersei, of, uh, you know, who occupies the uh, Iron Throne in, mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, what do you call it, Kingdom, uh, King's Landing. Uh, and so she's the extremist, and Snow is the centrist. And he, think, he says things like, um, you know, some of the, these are not his exact words, but mm -hmm. the time for tribalism is over. What we're fighting for now is not family, but we're fighting for life itself. Right. You know, in other words, the stakes, these zombies of race, the stakes so high that we can't afford these family wars anymore. And that essentially uh, is a centrist point of view. Now, um, extremist, extremist films reject all of that. You know, they would be on Cersei's side. Mm -hmm. uh, extremist uh, shows turn the center upside down or inside out, however you want to say it. So what, what is good for the center is bad for the extremes, and what's mm -hmm. bad for the center is good for the extremes. So, extreme, for example, in an extremist show, is often show a loyalty to family um, uh, or loyalty to kinship ties. Mm -hmm. And like, game, like um, the, the, the bad guys in uh, The Walking Dead, uh, Merle, do you remember Merle, who was... Uh, he was he's Daryl's uh, bad brother, right? And uh, he, for a long time, he um, he becomes a henchman of um, 
Philip, is it at uh, a community? It's the first bad community. Um, can't remember the name of it at the moment, but in any event, um, he t he captures and tortures uh, a couple of the characters uh, I remember, yeah. in Rick's band, mm -hmm. and um, uh, Rick, Rick uh, organizes a a little war party, invades you know this town which I can't remember the name of, and and frees them all, and they want to bring and they bring them back to the prison which they're all uh, they've sort of s set up their headquarters right. there, and. Um, uh, the the group the group of them that have been tortured object to bringing um, Merle back to the sure you know makes sense so and they refuse so Merle and Daryl go off by themselves now Daryl is sort of a good guy but he says Merle's blood I'm going with him mm -hmm. and um, they uh, they encounter a, uh, a Hispanic family which is being threatened by zombies and Daryl goes to their aid and Merle says something like. Um, they ain't never made dinner for me, you know. Right, right. right. Heavy Meaning southern accent. They're not part of, yeah, our, they're not tribe. Part of our family. Right. They're not blood ties. So why stick our neck out? Yeah. So Daryl, mm -hmm. that's too much. Too much for Daryl, and Daryl um, goes back to the the rest of them, you know. And Merle is kind of uh, excluded. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not quite the way it works, but more or less. In other words, um, uh, Game of Th I mean, um, The Walking, Walking Dead. Dead is also a centrist show, but they. They try on extremism for yeah. good measure. So they there's see, a tension there yeah, between far, the two. How mm -hmm. far you can go. I mean, yeah. in other words, the question in The Walking Dead is, is it justified to do anything mm -hmm. to, to, for survival, to, yeah. save, to save yourself? And at a certain point, Rick, who is the leader of the good guys, you know, um, kind of experiments with really bad behavior. In one scene, he, like, he actually behaves like a zombie and he jumps on one of his captors and takes a big chunk of flesh out of his neck with his teeth, you know, and um, later on he regrets it and he apologizes and he comes back to the center. So a lot of these shows are like laboratories where they're investigating essentially social issues that um, concern everyone. And um, even though they're set in very, you know, um, fantastic right. situ uh, right. you know, situations. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, uh, or do you think um, people are... Are thinking about these things as they watch them in any in any? Yeah, I think some people are, but you know, I, th most, I think a lot of these messages are invisible. Yeah, and right. Uh, the more maybe even to the people that create the shows. Well, I think a lot of the people who create the shows are fa fairly conscious. I mean, sometimes they're they're not conscious, but I think mm -hmm. I think they are. I mean, a show like Twenty Four, it seems pretty obvious. Yeah, and I mean, and it was Gail Hurd who mm -hmm. is one of the uh, showrunners of um, or mm -hmm. one of the producers of. of um, of uh, The Walking Dead, who told me that, uh, you know, from her point of view, one of the big issues in the show is, is are you justified in doing anything? Right. Um, but That's I, good to hear. I, I think that, um, you know, these messages are more effective the, the less visible they are. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you watch, you know, look, if Trump is elected, some, an extremist like Trump is elected president, people take notice. Mm -hmm. But if they're watching like, hundreds of shows in, where the hero employs vigilante violence, um, you eventually you get inured to it and you don't mm -hmm. notice it anymore. And so, you know, shows like science fiction and horror movies and westerns that have no apparent politics are the most effective in, um, in uh, conveying these kinds of values. Mm -hmm. I mean, I interviewed Edgar Wright 
uh-huh. May, Shaun of the Dead, and he compared his his shows, his movies, to um, Trojan horses, um, and said gotcha. that under the guise of of uh, a zombie movie, he would smuggle in other themes. Mm. And, and I think he's pretty conscious of doing that. We know fairy tales are Absolutely. known to be the yeah. same kind of delivery yeah. system, right? You know, Betelheim, you know. Uh, yeah investigated fairy tales. So I think sure. it's the same principles. Yeah, I see. So you're the brutal Betelheim of the of the <laughs> well, cable I, I did, yeah, I or of the I streaming didn't, I didn't mean to, age. I didn't mean to nail myself <laughs> with that. But. Uh, what, what was the um, research involved here? Because, I mean, I, I jotted down just a few of the series on the way over here. I was thinking about like, we, your book goes over, and this is just a fraction, by the way, Lost, Game of Thrones, as we've talked about, Walking Dead, the left what was the the religious one, the Christian? Uh, oh, well, there's a bunch of books called uh, the, the Left, left Behind, the and there was a series based on leftovers. Well, leftovers. <laughs> that excuse. series was actually based on a book by, excuse me, go ahead, mm-hmm. by Tom Parada. Okay, uh, and it's a little bit of it's a little different. I mean, it's a lot different from the Left Behinds mm-hmm. because that's a, a you know straight out evangelical show, and the Left Leftovers is a little more modest in its. I understand. In terms of the message that we're talking right. about, but I'm just even thinking about your research because uh, you you have to watch all these shows. Twenty four. These are just a few. Uh, are some of these shows obviously are so well written and so well produced that you you just want would want to watch them as a fan. But clearly, you had to watch even more so probably uh, for research. Correct. Correct. And the films that keep coming up, we mentioned a lot of the superheroes, both DC and Marvel universes, and um, Avatar is a big film that comes up a lot in the Correct. book for its liberal take because it's such an extreme liberal right to use your terminology that's a good example of an extreme liberal show right right so what did you what kind beyond, of beyond liberal were you watching the shows well you mentioned at the very beginning that this is sort of a sequel to an, your first book so maybe you had been planning this for a while as you watched all these series coming out and that were really uh connecting with the mass audiences i mean walking dead is i think the most popular cable series ever made uh to date well when i saw avatar which came out in 2009 i was not thinking about this so much <laughs> but <clears throat> excuse me i mean my first book was about um movies of the 50 hollywood movies of the 50s and that was the high t- 50s was a high tide of post-war consensus culture uh which was shoved aside by this extreme culture and so i decided you know like well things have changed a lot since the 50s you know you go back to that 40 50 years later and mm-hmm. you see that that mainstream culture has been um uh overtaken by extremist culture and it's bifurcated into extreme left and extreme right and that was sort of the genesis of the book but some of the things i started watching before i started working on the book and others i started watching because i was doing the book you know anything with zombie in the title i felt i had to watch yeah you know, and like anything else, there are good zombie shows and bad zombie shows. Are there more than one or two? Oh, yeah, there's a ton of them. There are. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, I didn't even know that. I mean, there, if you count the movies, there's a lot of zombie oh, sure. movies. Oh, my God, endless number. Yeah, and vampire movies. Another series that we should mention, of course, that comes up a lot is uh, True Blood. That's True another Blood, we which, mentioned. Which I thought was an extremely well-written Me show. Me too, you know? yeah. As I said, some of these shows are very, very skillfully done. Right. I mean, you have to, I guess, if you're going to go through that many seasons. Well, yeah. Which uh, um, also, you know, it, what what I was thinking about were because uh, um, I guess even though I appreciated and I watched a couple of several seasons of I think The Walking Dead as a fan, and I tried a couple of these other shows, I tend to and maybe you can tell already I tend to gravitate towards more of the this the sort of more dramatic. Uh, 
character, you know, driven character uh, oriented stories. So The Sopranos, of course, is a high point for me. And the first couple of seasons of Dexter, I was finding, and Nurse Jackie, I was finding that the now the hero of these different season, series were antiheroes. Uh, they were, you know, mobsters, drug addicts, and serial killers. And yet we loved them. The real trick of these shows for me was that they were able to write that narrow, you know, very, very narrow space where they were always had to be likable. There was something compelling about them that you you cared about their future. That's absolutely right. I mean, it's the, I call them the good bad guys, you mm-hmm. know, and, and taking bad guys and making them into good guys. I think, again, you could argue that that's another example of extremism because you make sure. what used to be, you know, I mean, 30 years ago, you didn't have gangsters and dope addicts and serial killers as the heroes of your shows. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to think of that. And Especially, I'm sure there's some examples, but I mean, there, and there go, are other re- occasionally Bogart would play. Well, a, there are other reasons for it. I mean, like, you know, the or Cagney. Know, David, I quoted David Chase, who made a, gave me a great quote uh, about network television, broadcast television be, being um, devoted to showing that American institutions work. And so you have, you know, the courthouse, the precinct house, uh, the schoolhouse, the White House. And those shows, all those network shows are devoted to, show, to showing that the agents in these institutions really, as mm-hmm. David, David Chase said, really gave a shit. Uh, you know, they might have um, some blemishes, you know, they might be alcoholics mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever, but um, they really cared, mm-hmm. you know, they were at heart really good people. And, you know, the development of, ca- you know, the, the onslaught of cable, uh, where a lot of the standards and practices which govern network um, television went by the boards, and then now the, the uh, streaming services, um, and then the proliferation of new devices on which these shows are mm-hmm. seen has done a lot to disperse and disrupt mainstream culture. So it's not only, um, I mean, there are a lot of reasons for it, but that's another one. Right. And the culture, as you mentioned, it's very bifurcated. Well, well, that's why Trump is so important to your book, this timing, because we've never been so at odds or bifurcated as a bifurcated culture and then also we have so much content which is created for those specific two spots like so you don't have to ever hear or there's an entire community around that and a and and media around just your for the choir you know yeah yeah which is a kind of a i mean the talk shows now devoted to the you know the talking dead you know right a lot of those shows that's, the fir- I think, the first example that I noticed. But a lot of those other shows have, you know, at least a 15-minute documentary tacked onto the finale of the last season or something like that, you know, where they talk about the, the, the actors, directors, or whatever, talking mm-hmm. about the shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's an, a meta discussion going on that, you know, that used to be called in the old days water, water cooler conversations yes. in offices, and now they're, they're incorporated into the, you know... Mm-hmm. I think we have to wind down soon because I know you're actually, I want to mention, correct? I don't know. I think the thing starts at 7. At 7, so. So we have a little more time. Okay, good. Now, this is great. Okay. No, I, are you kidding me? Of course, <laughs> this is a, kidding? Uh, as long as you want to. I'm uh, happy to walk with you and I'll carry the equipment right up to uh, Book Culture on Columbus Avenue. We may as well, even though this is coming out, this will have to be just after this, but we, you're here to do uh, this, uh, uh, one of, I'm sure, many uh, book events for the sky is falling. By the way, I want to mention that it's being published by the New Press, 
thanks to the folks at New Press for uh, helping coordinate us sitting here now. And it's a currently I'll available. I'll second that. I'll second that. Oh, oh thank that you. Great. Yeah. And um, I thought you meant uh, sitting with me. Was, oh, uh, sitting with you <laughs> I hope too. it's a positive experience <laughs> for you. But the book, The Sky is Falling, is currently available where books are sold, downloaded, <laughs> etc. Right. I guess you have to say pirated, that. Pirated, right. And pirated. That's right. And uh, I recommend everybody get it. Peter Biskin is also the author, though, of several other books. And they are seminal books. And I do want to mention that for so many people, especially of, uh, you know, who look like me, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. The Easy Riders and Raging Bulls. You can't not mention this book. It's so seminal. Writing it in, um, what year did it come out? It was certainly after uh, Raging Bull. Nineteen ninety-eight. That really twenty years ago. It's so it's, seminal. I expect it to have babies any moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost drinking age because it's twenty it's, years old as right. of now. So it's twenty we, years old. Yeah, your this, book can drink this year. Next, yeah, yeah. It's 20th anniversary. Is there, is there, I think it's a it's a it's an opportunity to repackage this uh, or re revise it. I tried to get the publisher to do it. For yeah. some reason, they weren't interested. So, what can I say? Fuck them. Sorry, <laughs> it's I not didn't appropriate. Say that. You did. I said it. <laughs> What, what a major book, though, for so many people. People still talk about this book in, all the time, all the time. Did you have any sense that you were writing something that was going to connect well, so strongly I, with... Well, the answer to that is yes and no. First of all, on the no part is you never know. You know of course not. You, you, you yeah. have no idea how a book is going to be received. But on the yes part, um, I, I had been a magazine editor for so many years. First, I edited a, a, a magazine called American Film, which is mm-hmm. many years d- deceased. And then um, I was executive editor of Premier Magazine, and I was very familiar with the kinds of reporting, uh, so, you know, uh, Hollywood reporting that people did, you know, that I did, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. everybody, you know, as an editor, all my writers did, and I knew that I'd gone way beyond that in this book. So I was actually scared when the book came out because I, I felt like I'd sort of put a stick of dynamite in the mail, you know, mm-hmm. but. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that it was going to be received so um, enthusiastically. I mean, it was a great... It's weird, though, because it's sort of like when you make your first film, like, you know, Rafelson and uh, Five Easy Pieces or, you know, Bogdanovich in the... in the You know, like, God forbid I should compare myself to great filmmakers, but when your first work is... is he, it wasn't my first work, but it was... Uh, right. The, 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 my note. first book came out way before that. You know, everything else is, is downhill afterwards. Bardanovich you know? was Target, right? Yeah, Don, well, his first work was Target. Yeah. yeah. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, it's a great experience, which mm-hmm. every writer should have, believe me. It's, it's, uh, it's, really? It was wonderful, you know. Yeah. Uh, it was actually even adapted into a mo- motion picture. Did you know well, that? Well, it was in a, a documentary. <laughs> I know. I'm, just, not, uh, I'm, tra- I'm kind of... Actually, it's been optioned. Is that... Okay. I don't want to mention it. I mean, no, I don't want to mention who. And... <laughs> so is it, just so this way we can even excise it, but it, as a... Um... Series. Oh, as a series. Yeah, maybe. Okay. I mean, it's a See? hard book to, it's a hard book to do because it's so, there's so many stories in it. You have to really prune it and focus it. Right. You know, because there's well, like six or seven, ten major figures in the book and they have, they right. go out, through, they go through the whole book. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, um, well, like a series adapted you know, it, it's a re, it's a different structure than the a film version might be, right. or whatever other medium we're talking about. Uh, 
and uh, well, any and uh, down and dirty pictures. Uh, you did a book with. Um, well, that, thanks to Harvey Weinstein. That, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, it's gotten a this second is now, life. It's, <laughs> yeah, for other very different reasons, right? Yeah, exactly. That's right, Miramax. So I, I mean, it's a can of worms. So I'm not going to be. Able, I'm not going to bring it up because it, it would just be another, another half hour conversation on that. So you're. Oh, and then I should also mention, sort of bouncing up around a little bit, but. The event you're going to is being moderated by another very uh, important figure James in the Seamus. history of yeah. James Seamus, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, he um, started at uh, uh, Good Machine mm -hmm. with Ted Hope, to, with yeah. Ted Hope mm -hmm. went to Focus Features and uh, spent many years there and, and um, did many wonderful movies, Breakback Mountain, you know, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, uh, all sorts of Created Ang Lee. And, and well, I don't know if he created, but no, he, he certainly was responsible, partly responsible for Ang Lee's career. And yeah, he's a seminal figure. And on the side, he teaches uh, at you know Columbia University and writes scripts. You know, so he's sort of a Renaissance man. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, we're, we're, he has a house upstate around where I live. Oh, up in upstate. That's right. You are involved in a, a film festival. And, and I, I. Uh, it's coming up. I run a film festival up, uh, which is coming up the third week of October, and it's actually a terrific festival. And when we started, uh, James gave us our sort of, um, you know, anchor films, you know, because we, when we started, we had nothing. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, to yeah. start a festival in a, in a sort of small town is like um, inventing <laughs> the wheel, you know. Uh, yeah. And I couldn't get anything. You know, and James would give us those films, Brokeback Mountain and Crouching Tiger and a couple sure. of those other. Every year we would get a big focus Thanks. film. Right. And if it weren't for that, I don't think we ever would have gotten off the ground. So he's certainly instrumental in, in, in helping us create this festival. It's called the Hudson Valley. You know, Am called, I right? It's Am I called, wrong? It's called Film Columbia because it's oh. in Columbia County. It's called Film Columbia. Yeah, one word. Film Columbia Festival? Film uh, festival? Yeah. Or, or whatever, yeah. just Film Columbia. Well, uh, I, I I was going to attend because last year and I did not. Or, I mean, last year we had a banner year. We I, had Lady Bird and we had uh, three billboards and we had uh, no. Tanya. I mean, it was That's amazing. A, that is amazing. All Oscar nominated. Yeah. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, a film I was an associate producer on played at your festival. Which it's which called one? Born in a, uh, Born. I knew I was going to screw it up. Born Guilty, with Rosanna Arquette. That was a while ago. Right? That was last year. Was it last year? Yeah. That's how long ago it may have felt to you if you saw it. <laughs> you should, well, I guess you would know, but uh, yeah, on. no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, unless it, uh, yeah, no, it because I tried to come. Festival? I was wanted to come. I it's it's very possible, but I remember. Yeah, festivals I remember. <laughs> no, no, but I remember reaching out. I don't want to drag this on. It's not uh, great podcasting necessarily, but uh, I, I um, remember reaching out because I did see your name associated with the festival. So it makes sense that it would have been the one that you're you're talking about. But I'll, I'll double fact. I'll fact check. I remember because I was very excited by the idea of coming up and trying to talk to you there. So, well, but maybe I'll come up to Film Columbia. Yeah, this, is it in the fall? Uh, it's in the third week of October. It's, yeah, it's coming up. So I, I I think I might skip another upstate festival this year and come to yours. Okay. I, I don't know if you know which one I'm referring to, but um, they released their their. I can't badmouth other festivals. No, I would not ask, and I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't encourage you to do that. Uh, we're all one big happy community uh, most of the time. <laughs> anyway, unless, unless we're not. Unless, <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Uh, so last time, Peter Biskin is uh, again the author. This guy is falling. How vampires, zombies, androids, and superheroes made. America Great for Extremism. And it's just terrific having you on the, my little podcast here. But hopefully uh, 
I don't know. Hopefully, you'll come back on and we can talk about other stuff in the future. Okay. I'll be you happy know. to. Yeah. Uh, thanks again. Okay. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. I'll turn it off. This is the after after the show uh, informal talk, conversation. Talk, I turned off the podcast. I talk, It's like Oprah after the it's show. Like, it's like or at, uh, walking to Newcastle. What the Talking Dead? For like this is sort of <laughs> this is where we sit back and have a beer. Um, and I'm joking because I turned off the recorder and you. No, you I said I said how much I enjoyed the podcast and thank talking you. to um, talking to you. Well, thank you. And I should mention, like, t- I I've been ch- wanting to get J- Seamus on uh, because I do bring a lot of people from the industry, and I Ted Hope has been on several times over the years. Not right. since he went James to Amazon. Would be great. He's extremely articulate. I, and he's a wonderful speaker. That's what I'm afraid of. Because <laughs> <laughs> then I'm, you know, having to catch you'll up. Do your, you'll do fine. Okay. Thank you. Thanks again. Okay, that was the the postcard. (laughs) I've never had more fun in my life. In Can You Ever Forgive Me, Melissa McCarthy stars as Lee Israel, the best-selling celebrity biographer and cat lover, who made her living in the 1970s and 80s, profiling the likes of Catherine Hepburn, Tallulah Bankhead, Estee Lauder, and journalist Dorothy Kilgallen. When Lee herself becomes unable to get published because she's fallen out of step with the marketplace, she turned her art form to deception, abetted by her loyal friend Jack, played by Richard E. Grant. Fox Searchlight presents, in association with TSG Entertainment, an Archer Gray production, Can You Ever Forgive Me?, directed by Marielle Heller, the uh, director of Diary of a Teenage Girl, with a screenplay by Nicole Halafsener and Jeff Witte, based on the book by Lee Israel. The film stars Melissa McCarthy, Richard E. Grant, Dolly Wells, Jane Curtin, Ben Falcone, Anna DeVere Smith and Stephen Spinella. The film uh, does open, as I mentioned, wide on uh, Friday, this Friday, October the 19th. So check it out. I was thrilled because uh, as we're going into the first of these two conversations for this film, it's the first one is with uh, Dolly Wells. I first came to know Dolly Wells through the HBO series Doll and M which uh, was a, a hit. It ran two seasons. It was co-created by a uh, Filmwax friend and Adam Shartoff friend, Aza Jacobs. So I was interested in, in checking it out and then ended up talking to Aza some years ago about the series. This is Dolly, who plays Doll of Doll and M, and now she's in this great film, Can You Ever Forgive Me? We had a wonderful time. You'll hear firsthand, and then we'll come right back just to do a, a small intro for Richard E. Grant. But here is my conversation with Dolly Wells. Just these. I don't want the others. Come on, man. I slept these all the way here. There's people waiting. You know, you don't have to be so disrespectful. You've actually carried my books here. And you are? Lee Israel. Oh, we have copies of your latest work right over there. Nobody is going to pay for the writer Lee Israel right now. I'm months behind in my rent, and my cat is sick. It's four in the afternoon, and you're drunk. I'm hardly drunk. Craig, top her up. My suggestion to you is you go out there and you find another way to make a living. 
recently found this delightful sign letter. Fanny Bryce, one of my favorites. I could give you 75. Oh. I could give more for better content. It's a bit bland is all. Yeah, I can definitely get a lot more for this one. I mean, the PS makes it priceless. Mics are really cool with a red thing on the end. Clown nose. It is. Like I feel like I've got to be funny now. Okay, where's I think the... that's effortless, probably. Oh, bless you. Okay. Okay, Thank yeah, I'm going to talk about you, Sam, so I'd like to be is outside. It, <laughs> this is your security detail over there, I suppose, because... Yeah, these are my, my bouncers. She doesn't look that strong, but I tell you, if you wrong me, Natasha... Enjoy. The, I, I usually show up these things late in the day. I don't know yeah. why. And uh, I'm Adam. Adam, I'm Dolly. Lovely to meet you. The same here. And uh, and, and it's uh, so you go there, and the food looks like it's just, it's a decimated... <laughs> it looks like, you know... <laughs> People had had ascended upon. So mm -hmm. this was really nice. I hear and it was just it was amazing. I was like, oh, this is what it's like. Yeah, come. apparently this is what it's like. I and know this isn't my norm. I'm going to pretend it is. Yeah, this is my life. To, I have to remember to come in early. Also, people's minds are fresh and like a blank slate after. Yeah, they haven't got the two or three hours sleep they had the night before. Yeah, unless they've had a sort of traffic incident, they're going to be in good spirits and happy to Did talk. Did that happen to you? No. Oh, you brought it up. <laughs> no, I didn't drive myself here. I just want to mention a couple of things first and then, go on, then we'll go right into questions. One is, I went to summer camp in Vermont with Asa Jacobs. Oh, did you? So we, we go back. Yes, and, great. Yeah, sure. And then the other thing is also, oh. so and he did my podcast, which was fun because oh, great. with the first season of Dolly and Dolly and M. And yeah. Doll and M, I said, yeah, I want to do that because they just approached me about it. I said, my friend, my connection with, with, uh, with uh, Azazel and so, uh, and then um, the other thing is, uh, who else? There's one other. Oh, Andrew, hi. This uh, spring, I, I had him on the podcast with his new film about the... the Lean on Pete. Lean on Pete, exactly. Yes. So, he's apps, He's wonderful, isn't he? So Andrew nice. Hague, yeah, he's Very warm. He's and, a... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Really bright, effortless. He's... I really he's love guy. him. Yeah, I great would love guy. to work with him again. He's wonderful. And I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I'll tell him you said that. Make sure it happens. <laughs> I'd be like, well, Adam's told me we're definitely working. But not, uh, but but not Oz. You don't want to work. I with definitely him. want to work with Oz. Oh <laughs> Is my god! Is there going to be a season three? Is it oh, Oz? I wish. I know, just, um, yeah. At the moment, right. at the moment, there isn't necessarily right. going to be a season three. But Emily and I are writing something again, and I would. Oh, that's good. Definitely. I mean, Dolly and M was <clears> a, <throat> a serious collaboration of of Aza, M and I. Yeah. And Alessandra, who produced it all. Oh, and, right, I mean, everybody was brilliant, but. As a, of course, I would want to work with. You were the again. star of that show, and you were with you Emily. were kind enough to give Emily Mortimer a supporting first break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very thoughtful, and and you kind of do the same in this film. I know. Can well, you ever forgive me? Yeah, I just thought Melissa deserved. Yeah, a, a moment break. in the sun. Yeah, yeah. I I, I gave I, it to her. She's very she's she's not bad in it. <laughs> you play Anna. I do. Right. I would pronounce it Anna because I'm English, but I do. I, oh, okay. I do play Anna. Well, is it? Anna, or is it? I thought well, I, was actually, going, I was going British. It, so. You are American, and flawlessly so. I knew you were Thank British, you. but if I hadn't known, I was thinking. I even th it, it, it occurred to me that you, in particular. I mean, you know, you, you sounded great. I mean, like an so American. Sweet. Yeah. Well, when like, you say really you in particular, I was the only person in the film that was putting on an American accent. Did you think my American accent was better than Melissa's? Well, I meant in the broader scheme of of British actors well, playing Americans. Really, truthfully, and there's a long, long history of that, mm. right? But you're right, Richard E. Grant, who's in this film, is already he doesn't no. t attempt that. No, an American bird. No, 
you know. I know. So there, was there, I know this is taken from Lee Israel, who's the, uh, who wrote the story. Yes, she wrote a memoir in, in a memoir, yeah. 2004, I think, to check on that, I think it came out. She wrote, can you forgive me, based on what she'd gone through, her mm-hmm. life as a brief career as a forger. Right. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure what your question is. Oh no, that Sorry. I, didn't get <laughs> I, took over. I was kind of setting it up. And my, yeah. I guess my question was, you read it. Did yes, you, did you I have did, a chance yeah. to read it? Uh-huh. I guess it would make sense to do your due diligence yes. leading up to the film, yes. right? Is uh, it was Anne, Anna? Uh, was she a, <laughs> <laughs> was she a real? No, no, she wasn't. Was she like, she wasn't not a real. She, exactly, she was oh, a composite. Really? Could look at listen. Now I don't know if I say composite or composite. <laughs> what would you say in, in the UK? We'd say comp. Don't say it again because I can only hear what you're gotcha. saying there. Right. <laughs> I think oh, we'd say let's skip it. <laughs> a composite. Oh, okay. But that was part of that's part of what's hard when you do an American accent. Is yes. it isn't it's that's the thing I have the most trouble with. Right. Is the inflection. Yeah. Because an English that person would say right. Come over to my house and we'll have some chocolate cake. You would say, Come over to my house and we'll have some cho- chocolate cake. Oh, interesting. So that's why you say yeah, right. composite, whereas we say That's right. Composite. Oh yeah. no. Because getting the No, no, you got it. Because getting the um the actual accent is uh at a certain point. It just sort of takes, uh-huh. right? You kind of get your way into it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you do others. I can do quite a few, actually. But the American is the one I'm the most self-conscious about, weirdly. Because I, I'm i not really a perfectionist about anything much. But my father was an actor and a satirist. And he used to be able to do really good accents. And I don't like hearing it not... It sort of makes me really cringe when I can hear it not sounding quite right. right. And with what I think is very hard about doing an American accent, and I think most English actors think this is that when you first start doing it when you're about to have an audition or something you feel like a robot because you feel because Mm -hmm. English people we move you the cadence of how you're talking is so much you know up and down so much more and there's so when you're first trying just to learn the lines or have an American accent it feels very very flat Mm -hmm. and you can't work out who you are and then you've got to put the layers on afterwards of trying to be is it harder to do I mean Oh, since we have so much time, I can, just, <laughs> I can, go, I can go off on a yeah. on a tangent, like the 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 the, the uh, accents and the um, I quite dialects. Like but can you do several dialects too? No, you know, that's. A, I mean, I could it's if like you your British have s- s- like at least two or three dialects. And <laughs> <laughs> I think we have a few on that. Um, no, it depends on where I have to be from, and then I would really practice, and I would find that really fun. Yeah. I just had an audition or something. I was American. I was like, Oh, really? Where are they from? And they went central. And I was like, No, no, but where exactly? Because I was thinking that's yeah. part of what's really fun is getting really specific. Yeah. But um, I, my husband is American. Oh. And I think it was when I first started going out with him many years ago that I just felt cringed by doing an American accent. But on Can You Ever Forgive Me, I really put in a lot of time so that it would could get to the point where I wasn't thinking about my accent when yeah, I was right it, it takes place in New York it does yeah in the and, early and 90s. you 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 man, run or own it was inherited as you mentioned uh, yeah. in the film but it's your bookstore yeah which is actually a real bookstore yes um which I Crosby Street bookstore and uh yeah I was almost like I could imagine because there's so few independent bookstores oh, and no. we can move on to that too mm. Because uh, there's so few left that it seems like every one of them was in the movie. I know. Uh, I used to live on the Upper West Side until recently, and uh, right around the corner from that one, which had the was like kind of a, had the the uh, loft level. 
You know what I mean? It's like a duplex kind of bookstore. It's what in the it film. Called? It's in the film. Which, oh yes, Westside Books. Yes, maybe, yes, yes. Something like yes, that. I, yeah. yes, I do remember. That was also in um, Todd Salon. Uh, not which, Salons. Todd Haynes' him. film. Which, both of them. Which They're film? both great. Anybody Todd is great. <laughs> Todd also. There's uh, um, Sweeney Todd wasn't so good. <laughs> not so he didn't direct it. <laughs> <laughs> Given the opportunity, um, so uh, but it's so true. <clears throat> Excuse me. When I was growing up. And I'm sure uh, it was before your time, even. But yeah, when, right. there were okay. there were yes, no, yes. but there were lots of independent bookstores everywhere. You know, I know. No, it feels. And even earlier than that, there were that many more. Well, but, I only moved to New York in 2013 from London, but I have, and it's like it starts sounding so old and boring because I have kids and they don't really like reading. And I'm sure if I, I grew the same, up, same thing. I'm sure if I'd grown up in a time where there were iPhones, like I have noticed a huge down, even in myself, yes. because you get into bed yes. and you're tired and. Then, and I've tried to do that thing of turning all the apps off at a certain time at night, but I'm just sort of turning oh. them back on. But when I grew up, there was a shop called John Sando on the King's Road in London when I was 14. And my mother, it sounds so square now, but that was a real treat. At the beginning of the holidays, I was taken to the bookshop and I could choose like six or seven books for the that summer is. holiday. And oh I was an avid reader. I just couldn't read. I've read everything by Jane Austen by about 14. I'd read... Jane I mean, Austen, is I that know. her name? No. Jane. <laughs> but I couldn't yeah. stop reading. I mean, and well, Jane Austen was... Also, my great, 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 like eight uh, great aunts. So get maybe, out of here. I know, isn't that crazy? It's so exciting. So I had a reason to. But anyway, I well, love. If you go back that far, Dostoevsky, <laughs> I'm sure, is a relation of mine, you know, <laughs> Tolstoy, Chekhov. But, um, so I really loved reading. So when I came here in 2013, my kids were eight and 11. Mm-hmm. And um, the only bookshop near us, but I loved it, was Court Street Bookshop. Oh, yeah. That was a brilliant I was gonna ask you, I figured you were in Brooklyn. Yeah, uh, and it was, I've moved since then, but. Oh. And I love that bookshop. And it feels... It's a I mean, proper bookstore. Yeah. yeah, and that was where I lived in London. It was a proper bookshop that I'd go to with my kids. And it was yeah. like a sort of... Like being at somebody's house, just a sort of like a friend. Yeah. And then it, that, that one bookshop nearly closed. See, about, the problem know. with New York now, we've gotten into a problem and into a sit- corner because, you know, the big box stores like uh, Barnes & Noble and uh-huh. Border, the Borders, and you mm-hmm. remember those, uh, they... they, they um, took over you yeah. know they sprouted well, up on the eight in the 90s early late 80s early 90s and then the real estate prices because they weren't the only type of store that did that there were a lot of bigger stores came in and all the real estate then you know the cost of real estate rise because all of a sudden their their tenants were these huge corporations like like those bookstore companies so now that but then they're going away those there's almost none of them left anymore well even the bonds in there yeah there's maybe two or three in the city there used to be like Many more. Are than they that. going away? That's so interesting. Yes, they've been closing. There's one in Union Square. There's one on Atlantic, and there's one on Atlantic Avenue, in Brooklyn, uh, or, which has got a well, it's got a Starbucks court as Street, part of yeah. it. Is it? Is that? Yes, it's you're on right. Court. It's, it's on court. You're and, right. And you're, yeah, yeah we, you're uh, on court. My, I took my kids, my kid there for you know, but there's only a few of those now. So the problem though is now, in a, if you want to open an independent bookstore, the time is right because you have that customer service, like like I Anna. I know. Or maybe I will. That kind of professional now that my work is done getting Melissa McCarthy a job and <laughs> I feel like maybe that is what I'll do well it's a fantasy because you're around the books all the time but you're also providing a ser- level of service that yes I can order a book off of the I can order a copy of, I know and I feel you, bad will I, you ever forgive me I, uh, I know off the uh, uh, oh, you know Amazon I know but, but uh, what I you you can you ever forgive me? But, you said it right, by the okay, way. I can okay. see the panic in I, your eye. But. It was a little bit. Well, it's an easy one. Well, you know, it's an easy one to kind of scramble a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but uh, anyway, I, I didn't expect to be. It was off the Dolly and M that you got wrong. Not can you ever forgive me? Yeah. So just just to remind you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
I, I apologize to Asa because yeah. he's a good guy. He's a um, really good guy, and he came up with a title so of that of, of Dollar series. M because we couldn't figure it out. We couldn't decide what to call it. It's like naming your kids or something. Emily and I often have that of things that we've worked on together where you just think, oh, yeah. what do you call it? And Asa sent when we'd made the pilot and he edited it together and was like, I think this could be a television show, he sent the thing with it saying Dollar M on it, just like it was for us to watch, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. You, but anyway. Yeah. Um, thrown you now because I'm changing no, I, you know, I just wanted to put that just, just a, now that independent bookstores can't afford the, the, the rents yes. anyway. That's all I want to say. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. It's true. Even it's though they're, they're, there's a place for them, people like them, but they just they can't really exist like anymore because they, they couldn't make their well, bottom we could, line. Anymore. We could get really depressing if we wanted to. I mean, no, we don't. Need okay, we but even in England, like it's not only yeah. it's that feeling of bookshops, libraries closing, closing, even closing. Libraries? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. In my neighborhood where I lived when I was leaving, that that they did all the neighborhood everything they could. Mm-hmm. But you feel like, yeah, a, a bookshop is the heart of the neighborhood in my mind. Right, and I think it's really tragic it's just breaking down sense of community even further and further and further that's right so, yeah that's right it's eroding the the, the social centers and the social so. networks of our uh, so. you know cities especially when you're a bit older and like going to a bookshop is like with the, oh this morning i'm going to go to my local bookshop and there yeah. you'll be helped by somebody nice like yes. anna yeah and right. they'll talk to you and they'll talk about what you've been reading and you'll mm-hmm. have a sort of interaction <clears throat> that is not the same someone just bringing a package to your door and also environmentally it's not very good even though i bought about 15 packets in the last week (laughs) i forgive you i wish i had known i could have brought forged letters though from literary letters have you got lots of two bookstores because i never even knew that yeah yeah i've been working on those for a long time yeah no but i'm trying to also leak in it uh, or rather uh include some of the the film's Themes. Themes, yeah. Yeah, very subtly. Uh, I'm so glad I really knew very little about this particular film before watching it. Because it, it's a rare occasion where they really just got, got the tone right. And, so uh, right, didn't and, they? And, yeah, this, and it's about, even though it's kind of not, it's about loneliness and it's mm. about alienation, I guess. You know, Melissa Lee Israel has kind of cut herself off in many ways. Yeah, but, but it's also but, telling you, <clears throat> sorry I'm interrupting please you, Please do. while I can remember it, is the thing that I loved as well is it's like, it's such a small story about somebody who is so interesting, but it's just reminding us that not everybody has to have such an enormous life or reach such sort of, you know, whatever the word is. I'm just doing it with my hands. So you don't have to see, but, <laughs> That's you right. Know, reach such hu- dizzying heights by a certain age that like, you're not successful because your book hasn't sold this many copies. Yeah. And you haven't had this many. Da-da. You know, that she was a really rich and interesting character. And I'm find people like that so um i'm so sort of impressed by people that really stick to their own path and they're not people pleasers and they're not willing to change any aspect of themselves i'm sort of i've got some of those in my life and it's really you feel two things you feel so impressed and that they really are a pure artist and you also feel sorry because that is part of life is having to change a little bit having to sort of work out how to be your best self within the confines of things being i don't know having to sell things or you know make a bit of money and live but that, that scene it doesn't give anything away but when her agent is telling her you know mm-hmm. that you have to be a bit more famous to act like such an asshole you know and she's just not going to change it's a and great well, great it, scene it's yeah, so i mean the Jane whole Curtin got a really nice brief but yeah juicy part well that's of, the thing there aren't that many people in the film apart from Alicia right. and richard i mean i don't do a huge amount but it's it's lovely to see Oh, there's just a sort of connection between them that 
you know, I mean, that's that's the downside of Lee is that she just doesn't feel that she deserves to have a nice time. Those people yes, that just sort right. of whip themselves, hair shirt wearing. But um, but I agree. I think it's a really beautiful small film that I think the performance is incredible. I think it looks so beautiful. Arjun, who did the costumes, is a real genius. I think. I think it looked just so spot on. It yeah. really took you to the early nineties. And I wish I didn't move here, as I say, till two thousand thirteen. But you fall in love with New York. New York mm -hmm. is such a huge character in the film. Yeah. Did you... Um... No. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to figure out what I'm going to ask. I could just listen to you talk about it. You didn't really need to do any uh, research. Research. Just that, no, you um, don't. Come on, that's such a stupid question. Let's no, 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 you're so sweet. No, I no, did, no, no, no. No, um, I didn't really, but I just read... I, the best research, I think, as an actor in a way, is just really, 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 really familiarizing yourself so it's not was a there, story anymore. There's no your time, story. And there's no time for rehearsals no, or anything No, I was like only on anymore. it for about and it, four or five days, right. I think. There's no rehearsal. Yeah. But but Mari, obviously I'd have to say that, but I really mean it. She's a really deft, brilliant director. Marielle Heller. Yeah. She's a fan. Marielle Heller is, a, is <clears throat> such a good director in that she really... You have real respect for her and you really want to please her. But it's also, it's so relaxed and intimate the way she tells you, you know, because I did feel quite nervous at the beginning. I was playing, I was not doing my own accent and I was working right. with Melissa McCarthy and Richie Grant. Yeah. You're like, wow, these two are fantastic. And this is a really lovely little story. I want to just do my best. But Mari, the director, is, um, has got such a fantastically light touch and you so trust her. And she's so, you really feel like you've got her eyes on you. She's really concentrating and has got the whole picture of how she mm -hmm. wants it to be. So you mm -hmm. really trust her. And then it just becomes really fun. Right. How many features have you made now? As a, oh, gosh. Quite a few. Quite a few, actually. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, well, I've had small parts in many. Right. Um, since I've lived in America, I've been in this one. I was in one with Reese Witherspoon called... Oh, yeah, come... Home Again. Home Again. Um, I was in one that Lake Bell directed called um, oh. I Do Until I Don't. Um, anyway, very, got it, got got a few, yeah. So, yeah, do you like this kind of size, you know what I'm saying, of an independent film, but it's got, like I Fox do. Searchlight, is, it's great because then people will know about it. It's, it's, a, well, you know, is a, yeah, it's got a, kind of a sweet spot in a way. I know, I totally agree. You know, I it's totally not, agree. there aren't too many films that come out every year like this I, particular film, which no. is small, but kind of also. Small, but will really be pushed. And yeah. dramatic. And has uh, it's just a character-oriented film. It's just not that many. No, and there's it's a gimmick, but it's not much of, of a gimmick. It's a. It's, no. I mean, if you're talking about forging, it's. No, this is one. This is exactly. This is my sweet spot for. Right. Films that I enjoy watching are small, slow films with not with, well, just real characters who you believe, and it's just beautifully, beautifully. I mean, Melissa is so good in it. I think yeah, she really is. She. She's taking it. She's a, I mean, it's, it, it couldn't have been made without like a Melissa McCarthy. No. And yet, you know, in this day and age, sadly. Um, but, uh, at this, you know, so it was really, I don't want to say it's uh, great. It's great that she would, that she's able to pull that off. I guess she can do what she wants, but, you know, she probably has well, a lot of pressure. Well, she's intelligent enough to know right. when you see something. Because, you know, that her, I don't know if you've interviewed her yet, her yet but her husband not, was. I wasn't in allowed to. These. No, I'm kidding. I, I didn't even ask. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, her husband yes. got a part in the film first, and that's I, why she read the script. Oh, I didn't was, know that. Yeah, and she was mm. like, oh, my God, who yeah. is playing Leisure? This is the most incredible. That's you know, funny. I and didn't it had a full that. start, and it was going to begin as something, and then it fell apart, as films often do, yeah. and then it happened again. I see. That kind of happens in the series, uh, 
Nobody's. What is it called? That she, you know, that series she EP'd. I, I don't. Uh, know, it's a thank you. It's a it, there's a um, this series. I I, don't, I arbitrarily watched it. I just was looking for a comedy because there's so much dramatic television on right now, as you know. Uh, but there's not a ton of comedies, and no. I just this was for the sake. I was just trying different ones, and uh, I came across this one, and it's about these three uh, producer slash actors in who live in Hollywood, and uh, they're trying to you know get develop something for themselves, but they end up get do, creating the show, and then he's he gets the part. Uh, yeah, I shouldn't say he. Why not? Oh, you should say the person's name. Yeah, Ben. Excuse me. Ben. Her husband. Oh, yeah, 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 Ben yeah, Falcone. Yeah, yeah. And so, and then she, of course, comes on, and she's got this enormous ego. She plays like a. She mocks her own. Oh yeah, so. hang on. I think I've seen a clip for this. It's yeah, really it's funny. Fun. Yeah, she's very funny. What's it yeah, called? Nobody. Really, nobody's. I think. Or, nobody's. I'll do you remember that TV? No. no I can edit this part, yeah. so <laughs> so we don't all sound like. But speak uh, for yourself. She's, she's really funny. <laughs> she's really funny, and he's very funny in that because they kind of play up their yeah. I've seen this thing, and that the yeah. idea that he gets work because of his attachment to her. Yeah. But this is a case where you're saying it's the opposite. So it's yeah, we've been you know. Yeah. But I think we're winding down here. But okay, it great. was a pleasure to it meet you. Really I had no nice. idea uh, how and how this would turn out because you never know. You don't ever know. I hope, you, I hope this goes smoothly. I think it's gone all right. Good. Me too. Oh. It was really nice yeah, meeting you. It was really nice to meet you. Pleasure. Thank you, you very so much, much. Tell me one more time when yeah. you met Asda, because I can tell him that's so funny. It was at yeah. summer camp. Yeah, camp. It was named after, it's called, this is embarrassing, Camp Thoreau, after Henry David. And we, yeah, it was a very uh, much a uh, bunch of hippie kids. And and uh, he's a few years younger, so he may have been a camper still, and uh, I don't remember exactly. But I remember very clearly, because he had a very distinct look. And so I was like, that's the same guy years later. And this is before your series. I met him. I got back together with him and met him through one of his earlier features that he directed. Anyway, thanks again. Not Thank cool. you. Really nice to meet you. Cheers. Thank you. Say then to the mic how nice yeah, it is to meet me. I love very, very. <laughs> 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 this is the best interview I've ever done. My God, Adam. Thank you so correct. much. That's the correct answer. <laughs> I'm wide open to meeting Melissa McCarthy, certainly, and to talk to her. But if, it, but honestly, if it was between Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant, I actually would have probably chosen Richard E. Grant to talk to because, not to say I'm not, again, I'm I totally would love to bring on Melissa McCarthy onto my podcast, though, and that would be a wise thing to do. However, on a very personal and and I should say selfish level, Richard E. Grant is has a Huge, huge, bigger place in my my mind, my 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 heart, uh, because when I was a young guy, um, just at the beginning of my discovery of independent films and art films, uh, he was in one of those earliest, one of the earliest films that I can recall that I went and checked out on my own as a young man in New York City, and that was with Nell and I in 1987. All right, chef. What do you want? Cake. All right, chef. No, we're closing. We're leaving in a minute. 
one. Cake and tea. Didn't you hear? She said she'd closed. What do you want in here? Cake. What's it got to do with you? I happen to be the proprietor. Now, would you leave? Ah, I'm glad you're the proprietor. I was going to have to have a word with you anyway. We're working on a film up here. Location, see. We might want to do a film in here. You're drunk. Just bring out the tape. Cake and fine wine. If you don't leave, we'll call the police. Balls. We want the finest wines available to humanity. We want them here and we want them now. Miss Blenner has it. Telephone the police. It's all right. Miss Blenner has it. I'm warning you, if you do, you're fired. We are multi-millionaires. We shall buy this place and fire you immediately. Yes, we'll buy this place. And we'll install a fucking jukebox in here. <laughs> I would all you stiffs up a bit. The police, Miss Blenner, has it. Just say there are a couple of drunks in the Penrith Tea Rooms and we want them removed. We are not drunks. We are multi-millionaires. Hurry up, Mabs. We'll keep them here till they arrive. It won't keep us anywhere. We'll buy this place and have it knocked down. Right, right, right. Please, please. Right. We're going. Our car's arrived. We'll be back. We're coming back in here. If you haven't seen With Nell and I, do yourself a favor and see this British film. Richard E. Grant, that was my introduction to him. It was one of his first films ever. In fact, it was certainly the first feature film that he, I would say, starred in. It's, it's, it's an incredible movie that it got made. It would never get I don't think it could get made today. Maybe it could. Maybe in England. I don't know. Anyhow... He was at forever there and, and is like one of my favorite actors. And uh, maybe within a couple of years, he, he came back and had to get ahead in advertising, which is another film. Another, it's a comedy. You've got to see it. He's been in scores and scores of other movies since. He's now one of the most hardest regular working British actors around. And it was a thrill to sit with him. And, and by the way, he often plays you know, misanthropes and bad boys and that kind of thing. Well, he is probably one of the warmest, generous people I've had on the podcast, and certainly in this realm of actors. What a what a great guy. I wish I could have sat with him another hour easily, and maybe one day we'll have that opportunity. But in the meantime, here he is. He plays Jack Hawk in Can You Ever Forgive Me? opposite uh, Melissa McCarthy. Great opportunity for him, by the way, because uh, he is the second built star of this movie. And and um, I hope this only helps bolster his uh, career, be in front of as many people as possible. Uh, they know they need to know this wonderful actor, uh, and and he's here right now on Filmwax Radio. Here he is, Richard E. Grant. Quite by accident, I find myself in a rather criminal position. What criminal activity could possibly involve it, except a crime of fashion, of course? I'm embellishing literary letters by prominent writers. I love his writing. Particularly clever, don't you think? Caustic wit. <laughs> this is quite something. These are wonderful. I thought so, too. Name your price. You were looking at one month's rent. What are we going to do? Gamble? Shop? Drink? <laughs> Mrs. Israel, let me have a couple of questions regarding the last letter I purchased. Uh-oh. What seems to be the problem? People are on alert. 
Your name's been put on a list. On a list? They're literary treasures, one of a kind. It's my writing. You're impersonating other people. Nobody's buying Lee Israel letters. There have been some forgeries going around. Do you think it's real? Looks that way. Good. You're stealing from me? Come on. Get out of my house! That's just supposed to be something more than this. We're probably looking at some time behind bars. What? I can't say that I regret any of my actions. In many ways, this has been the best time of my life. So, you'll have to hold this. Yeah. It's not too big of an ask, yeah. is it? Okay. Thank you. And we're already recording. So All right. So, so I was going to say, don't say anything, you, but please do say anything you want. That would be perfect. I have no filter. <laughs> That's why I wanted to talk to you, because I, I figured that would be the case. How much why? of the... Well, there's the Richard E. Grant... Uh, can we just say Richard Grant, or do we say yeah. Richard E. Grant? whatever you want. It was, I assume that was because there was another Richard Grant in the union or something it like was. that. Because there's the persona of you, the you know, the bad boy. Sorry to be cliche. But, you know, this, this outrageous kind of guy yeah. that you see often... On screen, mm-hmm. not always. There's been number of ex- many exceptions, but you know, people know you from certain roles, right? And then there's this very subdued, laid back guy I'm looking at right now. <laughs> <laughs> You're a subdued, <laughs> a subdued. What are you? Remember that there was a band called the Subdudes. Was there? Yeah, in America, I think they were American. I'm, I'm not, yeah, definitely. I was very shy though, but I don't want to talk about that. I was oh. very shy. I kind of came out of out of that, but I had to force myself a little bit. Were you ever shot? You, you probably never were shot. I have been cursed or blessed, probably both, of mm-hmm. being hyper-curious and a nosy parker. So I've always been told that I've, ever since I was a little boy, I've asked too many questions. And so that has persisted. I'm now 60, almost blah, blah, 62, blah. and yeah. it's the same old story. Yeah. So if you ask a lot of questions, maybe it's a way of subverting people talking about yourself right so that's true yes you know i think that's that's what happened and i i had a nervous breakdown when i was 42 and this psychoanalyst said to me i kept asking him questions and he's he pointed this out to me so i never thought of it before he said you divert attention from yourself by asking about other people and i said but I am genuinely interested in other people. And it seems, and that's why I love the job that I do because you constantly are investigating other people's behavior and their lives. Sure. And he said, "Yeah, but you—it's a way of diverting from yourself." You genuinely also want to divert from yourself, so you know, right. So if you're if you genuinely want to divert attention from yourself, you're going to genuinely build a curiosity about others yeah but i but i think both can coexist yes it's it's an innate curiosity because i i find other people's lives much more interesting than my own so it's not being disingenuous or self-consciously thinking oh i've got to ask somebody about them because god forbid they ask about me okay maybe when you were 15 but now you're 60 plus or what have you you must understand intellectually your life is pretty interesting or you know or again the persona yeah I understand that. Yeah, he's yeah. got like okay. Here I am. I'm fifty. Some. I'm in my mid fifties now, and I'm came up in uh, the eighties. I started going to films on my own. Yeah, and I remember taking uh, the lovely Rebecca Walkowitz just to the quad <laughs> or the cinema. One of the East, one of the village cinemas to see Withnail and I, 
and uh, not sure exactly what I was watching at the time, but knowing that this was the <laughs> something utterly <laughs> amazing, you know. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was uh, so that and that has become for like this generation of guys like myself and hopefully women a real a seminal you know film for a lot of people so mm -hmm. this guy could that you're playing in this movie which his name is uh jack hawk yeah is that right he he could be like an older version of with now maybe like if he decided to clean up and a little bit well maybe that's the wrong term but move to america you know do well for a while and then yeah. things kind of soured on some level because he's too much of a of a, of a, uh, a party animal or something i don't know yeah i think Is that's it? true i mean they're both they share being alcoholics uh <laughs> yeah although i think that that's you know withnail was an entitled egomaniac in very very selfish where it seems that J jack hawk is somebody who is labrador like in that you know he'll try and lick anybody into submission to get a drink off them or friendship or a place to stay or he he doesn't have entitlement syndrome that's true Right, yeah. When you, I don't know how this part or this script, script, excuse me, was presented to you, how it came to you, but, you know, what did you make of the character initially? Did you think, oh, this is... I was called in November by my agent who said, you have 24 hours to read this script. And I said, what, it's like Mission Impossible, the thing's going to implode? And she laughed <laughs> and she said, no. I said, well, who's dropped dead or pulled out? She said, don't concern yourself <laughs> with that. Right. Just read it, and you'll see why mm. they need this discussion, the uh, decision very soon. So I did, and when I saw that it was Melissa McCarthy playing Lee Israel, and that Mariel Heller, whose work I'd admired on Diary of a Teenage Girl, was directing yeah. it, I thought, mm, right, okay, this is quality. This is really smart, yeah. and it dealt so cleverly and movingly with friendship. Uh, that I thought that it was irresistible because it really does go through the A to Z vicissitudes of friendship sure. as far as I can understand because you have the honeymoon period at the beginning when they first re-encounter each other in the Julius Bar, then loyalty that follows, inevitable betrayal, and then the final semi-reconciliation at the end when she needs him and he's already dying of AIDS. Um, and I suppose what it what it had for me was all the tenderness, poignancy and pain of what friendships can entail. And the movie references when I, when I read the script, because I always try and find what what does it remind me of. And the relationship, there were two movies. One was The Odd Couple, you know, Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon, Jack Lemmon sure. who are at odds with each other. And you think, on paper, these two people shouldn't really be cohabiting or friends, but they are. And the other one was obviously Dustin Hoffman playing Rizzo and uh, John Voight oh. playing the hustler in mm -hmm. Midnight Cowboy. Mm -hmm. Because, again, they're people who are on the fringes of society, struggling to make it yeah. in, in New York, you know, failing upwards. and But there is great friendship between them. And I, so that's that's what it struck me as. Is yeah, that sort of kinship or some sort of right deep bond or connection, right? Yeah, that they and the share. loneliness that they share, even though yeah, they're living in a city surrounded by millions of people, right? 
And that's yeah, the I thing that, that my daughter said to me when she saw the film for the first time with a bunch of her friends, and she's 30, that the loneliness of people was the thing that made a really big impact on them when they watched it. Interesting, yeah. That's definitely the true for Ratso and, and Joe Buck. Was that his name? Joe Buck and Ratso. Joe Buck exactly. and Ratso. You know, I'm walking here, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. God, I just I watched that again recently, and it's got to be the fifth or sixth time I've sat there. And I, at this time, I was moved to tears by Voight's, just something Voight did, yeah. like at midpoint. Just there's something so touching about his performance, you know. But I've seen it, you know, and the more you see something, you kind of grow, a natural distance occurs because of the familiarity, and you can anticipate, you know, naturally what's going to happen. So. Yeah. So to get back and really be in the moment of a film, the fifth or sixth or set, what time you've seen it, it, it you really have to be present for it. You it know? really stands the testament of time too, don't yeah, you think? Yeah, if you can, can still be moved by it. Absolutely yeah. extraordinary. Right, yeah. and discover new things even, of course, you know, yeah. each time. Yeah. Was this character, did you have an opportunity to read the novel beforehand? I did, and I was... I'm not the novel, the memoir. The me. memoirs. I was so disappointed in that... I thought this is, you know, I read the screenplay and then I thought, okay, that's, they've concertinaed these lives and the story from a book. But then the actual memoir was, it's 124 pages. It's very slight. Oh, I see. And it's written entirely eccentrically from Lee's point of view. And the description that it actually gives of Jack and what information she gives is so scant that she says, you know, he died of AIDS in 1994. He was 47 years old. He was from Portland, blonde, tall, had been in jail for two years for holding up a taxi driver at knife point, arguing about the fare. And he had a short cigarette holder because he was a chain smoker and thought that would stop him getting lung cancer. Other than that, there's very little. What you get is between the lines where she admits that where she thought that once she wasn't able to fence these letters, she'd been rumbled by the FBI a letter that she thought might get 600 bucks, he would come back with two grand. So I gleaned from that that he obviously, he didn't know who Fanny Bryce was, he wasn't any great intellect, but he had street smarts about him and mm. charm and that he could go and convince people to be fleeced of their money. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's that was the key to my understanding of what he must have been able to do. There was no malice in this character either. No, so the no fleecing malice. is not about the pleasure of... Uh, this is actually Jack wants to be your friend because of yeah. that loneliness you mentioned, uh, for one thing. And maybe just his innate friendliness. You yeah. Know? That's what he I said really about brought the Labrador. To him. He just, yeah. you know, he, yes. he's also... The, the exterminator is not prepared to come in to clean up her apartment because it, the stench is so bad. Right. And he, in an act of real friendship, you know, yes. he sticks lavatory pepper up his nostrils, but he goes under the bed and he clears all the cat shit out of the place. Yeah, right. And you know, that's an act of friendship that, you know, nobody else was willing to do for Lee. I didn't understand. I really just thought the place was a flea-bitten kind of place. I thought I didn't know how messy she was until I saw until that scene. Because you don't see that much of the apartment. It looks like a lived-in New York yeah. typical apartment yeah. of somebody who's lived there for a really long time. Yeah, but you can't smell it. But she doesn't network that. Well, yeah, and there's only one cat. Usually there's like five or six in a scenario like that at least. Yeah. And then um, uh, so the flies, which I thought that's unusual instead of a cockroach or something. But then <laughs> when you came in and you, your expression was... Just, I don't know how many times you did that scene, but uh, it was right on, spot on. And uh, 
but it's interesting they chose uh, th- this was a guy from you said like the uh, n- the Pacific Northwest or something yeah like he was the original the, mm-hmm. the actual person that you play and yet they went with uh, someone very you know from a very different circumstance you didn't try to do an American accent or anything well like Mary Hello uh, I hadn't, want you to I hadn't read the book um, before I accepted the job right. I'd read the screenplay sure and the screenplay d- identified him as an English person it did yeah oh I see so when I when I said to Mari, Marielle, I said, okay, he's English, but do I play this with an American accent? She said, no, 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 you, you played in your own accent. So that's obviously the decision that she made before I even met her. If you, were, if, you were in a, if you played a British man with an American accent, that would have been a new way. <laughs> uh, that you would see in a bar in the, like in the 80s or 90s. You, I, as a matter of fact, in the early 90s, I did go to this bar near where I worked at the time in, yeah. in, in, in Flatiron downtown. A bit. Uh-huh. And there was a British artist guy who would come in named Nick. Very unusual for a British man to be called Nick. But <laughs> Anyway, and he would come in and he would be, he's just the biggest character. And, and I think it was the last days where he could actually smoke in smoke a bar. Smoke in a bar, Possibly. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, there's something. There's, he was so larger than life. You couldn't help but be drawn to him. And I, th- I your character, Jack, reminded me of that. Uh-huh. But he's a bit more of a kind of the guy that would sidle up and try to insinuate himself in a yeah. in a very friendly way. You know. But when, as soon as you saw, I mean, the two of you had a real chemistry there. That was rec- something I recognized. You know. Mm-hmm. Did you expect to have that with with her? Did you meet or know her before this? I was very worried about yeah, that. that because I thought. The success of my relationship with her was predicated on us having a real connection. So it was mooted that we have a week of rehearsal, but it was low budget, and that never happened. And Melissa, only, I came to New York on a Wednesday for costume fitting, and we started shooting on a Monday. And so she then, mm-hmm. I said to Mari, when is, when is Melissa getting here? And she said, oh, she's only coming on a Friday. And I said... Please God, I I will. I'm so paranoid. I can't start work on Monday if I haven't even met her. So I said, could we possibly just talk through the script or just have half an hour? And it turns out Melissa felt exactly the same. So we spent the whole, we spent a um, half a day, and then had a meal together. And from that, you know, within nan- very very nanoseconds, I realized that I had a real connection with her. And I don't know whether it's because. I grew up in a very, very tiny town in the smallest country in the Southern Hemisphere in Swaziland, and she comes from a farm in Illinois. That, But I felt, I just felt an instant understanding and connection with her, and which has gone on. And that really informed how we did the movie. And the whole thing was shot in six weeks in 28 days. And on the days that I wasn't working, I would come in and have lunch. You know, we, we had lunch together almost every day. So hmm. that's something that, I haven't really experienced on another movie in quite the same way. So it was an enormous pleasure to do this. Uh, do you know how much time we have left? One minute. Uh, one minute? <laughs> Jesus, that's... Sh- two minutes? Oh, never mind. That's fine. It's never enough time for this type of stuff. I don't typically do this. But honestly, when I saw the film and then I knew you were in it, I I really made a point of... Uh, of Thank you. Of, of wanting to, I think I requested... Must have requested... You. I'm going to say that for the record. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, have a favor. Well. Yes. I, I. This is. I always feel self-conscious that it's a tacky, tacky 
request, but two th- two requests. One is, this is a podcast. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you have you listened to any? Have you done any? Yes, I have. Okay, so sometimes you'll put it on and they'll say, "This is Richard E. Grant," and you're listening to then my the name of my show. Would you do that? Yeah, because it would be amazing. Uh, and also, I, I was an enormous fan, and I did see also in the same theater, although without Rebecca Walkwitz, I saw How to Get Ahead in Business. Oh, right, advertising. Yeah, excuse me, uh, which right. I, which I also adored. And many films since I, what was the one where you played a dad? You're with the dad, Samantha. Was it no, it was no? Samantha Mathis. And cool. she, Jack and Sarah. Oh, what a sweet. Yeah. That was very sentimental. But she's a young babysitter, right? Or exactly. the nanny. Yeah. But you my two fall dies. in love. Yeah. Yeah. That was a sweet film too. Oh, but, thank you. You know, um, I I just remember very clearly your chemistry with her too. Thank you. It must be a singular talent to be able to to just sort of create chemistry with so many people like that. I'm just like hissing his ass at this point. <laughs> Sorry, I apologize. And so I say, this is Richard E. Grant, and you're listening to... Oh, right. The name of my podcast is Film Wax Radio. Okay. Film Wax Radio. So whatever you want to say, it's open to you. You can say anything you want. Anything. This is Richard E. Grant, and you're listening to Film Wax Radio. How lucky you are. Thank you. (laughs) That's perfect. Thank you. All right, that's it. And the other, I guess, would be maybe if we could do a picture. Yeah, sure. Do you mind terribly? No. Of course we can. And thank you, and good luck with Can You Ever Forgive Me? Thank you very much. You know, and and, and whatever else you're going to do. Thank you. back in the next couple of shows the expanded longer version of my conversation with actor karen Pittman. she is uh someone who i was married to once as you probably have figured out i had put up a shorter version of this conversation because at the time we were uh getting the word out as soon as possible about the theatrical screenings of a project she was involved with called pipeline well, it's going to have the pipeline is 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 going to have more uh, is going to be more broadly available, and we're going to talk about that, and then we're also going to talk about Karen's career as a actor and um, as an African American actor, and at that, and what it, what it takes to, to uh, navigate that kind of career. <clears throat> so look for that uh, in the coming week or two. And then we're also going to be posting my conversation uh, with Austin Pendleton, the character actor who's been around um, in movies for 50 years. Uh, He was one of the more lovely people I've ever had on the show. Uh, This is, I'm having a great time, I must say. Uh, And then we're going to bring back, uh, of course, Amos Poe back to the show. Um, I've been meaning to get this uh, podcast, I mean, I've been meaning to get this conversation up. It's just been hard with all the things going on. Um, uh, We also have a conversation with Lois Vossen. She's returning to the podcast also, Lois Vossen, who is the executive producer of, executive director of Independent Lens. They have a new season beginning later this month, and we'll be uh, putting up that conversation in the next couple of episodes as well. And then uh, finally, in the beginning of November, there will be 
uh, uh, not only a uh, retrospective of the acting work of Margaret, of the actress Margaret, uh, the actor Margaret uh, Von Trotta, but she's also directed a documentary about her old friend Ingmar Bergman, who would be celebrating this year his 100th birthday. Uh, and uh, so we will uh, be posting a segment with the uh, What a Wonderful person. That documentary that she made, by the way, was at the New York Film Festival where I caught up with it. And then I was lucky enough to sit down with Margaret, and you'll be hearing that as well. And so much more, as you know. Thank you for listening, everybody. This is Adam Shartoff, your host of FilmWax Radio. Uh, We'll be back in a few days with a brand new episode. Until then, take care of yourselves and the ones you love. Broken threads, broken springs, broken idols.